welcome to the Coaches Rising podcast. David Drake is my guest. We're going to be talking about his new paper, The Five Maturities, a new framework for assessing and developing coaches. So basically, we're going to get into the way that David feels we need to update the way we train coaches, getting away from focusing on competencies. How do we expand our notion of mastery to include this idea of maturity? What does he mean by maturity? How can we expand this notion of developing coaches so that it includes the development of the client and the outcomes we're going to create? We'll go macro, we'll talk about the industry we're in, how does it need to reinvent itself, and we'll go micro, what does it take to take on deliberate practice as a coach, and David's view of that. So uh, I love this conversation. For me, it's about how do we innovate the work we do and the field itself, and we'll be having more conversations like this in the future. David Drake is the creator of Narrative Coaching, uh, the founder of The Moment Institute, He is a long-term coach himself, highly respected in the field and is for me one of the the deep thinkers in our field who cares about it and cares about innovating the field so that we remain highly relevant in these times. So he's someone to listen to. Let's dive in. Here's the podcast with David Drake. David, uh, really cool to be with you. We've hit the record button. So here we are. We do this kind of like little pretending that we haven't been talking for the previous five minutes but how are you doing i'm doing great thank you joel nice yeah and um yeah i'm really excited about this conversation because of the the paper that you sent to me recently which Mm -hmm. i believe is not quite public yet perhaps but um the the five maturities a new framework for assessing and developing coaches and um, so I want to talk to you about that paper today and in general, just uh, kind of tune into some of the conversations we've been having recently of, as we've connected, because I think you've got some really important things to say. You, to me, you're like this, what this podcast is, is like sense making as well. You're one of these people out there in the field who yeah. you've got your own community. You've been in the field of coaching for a long time. I think there's a lot of things you love about the field. I think there's a number of things you're questioning about the field. Mm-hmm. And I think some of those will surface throughout our conversation today. So, and I I just said to you, I want to read a little bit from your paper, if that's all right, to kick us off. Uh, In fact, I I kind of like underlined uh, a bit from the conclusion, and then I want to go right back to the start and then kind of tee it up. So we'll see how this goes. Um, I thought it was really beautiful. So you wrote like, we're caught in this liminal in-between space between chasing progress and facing collapse both in ourselves and in our world. How can we bring coaching into these spaces with integrity? There's no point in coaching the person cleaning the deck chairs if they are doing so on the Titanic. This is important because most of the frameworks with which many of us were raised upon uh, and upon which coaching was built are fundamentally inadequate for coping with this time, let alone for centering ourselves, connecting with others, or creating and contributing to the changes we know need to be made. If coaching is to make a more meaningful contribution to an inclusive and sustainable way of living and working, we will need to join with others in telling new stories about ourselves, each other, and the planet. And, you know, I I think that's just really beautiful. People listening to this podcast, I think will, yeah, resonate with what you're saying there. And then just a couple of other things. So at the beginning, you say this paper explores how we might think in new ways 
about how to assess and develop coaches. In doing so, it shifts from the traditional focus from content to context, Hmm. from competency to circularity, from doing to being. It calls for greater emphasis on maturity, not just mastery, on who the coach is, identity and mindset in brackets, and not just what the coach does. This echoes the findings from the literature review uh, on team coaching, which is something you refer to above, that um, it is the self-knowledge domain, uh, the coach's way of being that is critical. And you, and you just, another little bit, you said like, um, rather than focus on normative measures based on applications of what is known, we need to now, we need to focus now on generative measures based on adaption to the unknown. Hmm. So, uh, you know, there's so much in what uh, you're saying in all of those. And I, hmm. I hear in that last thing, like, you know, a generative ontology rather than hmm. a descriptive ontology. Hmm. Maybe you could just say, you know, what does it bring up as I read this to you? Like kind of why did you write this paper, really? And what are some of your it points to some of your perhaps gripes about the way <laughs> coaches are trained or the, how the industry sees itself? So, yeah, just go where you want to go with all that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like a teenager in his first car, like, oh, hey. Like, well, I, you know, I, ironically, the, uh, you know, I've spent a long time in the coaching space and tried to really contribute to a larger conversation about the possibility of coaching. And, and even though this is probably my most um, succinct and direct critique it really isn't aimed at coaching per se or trying to it's just recognizing like every system there's a lot of um pressures around this status quo and it's it's um i'm i think i'm more interested now in um people that are on the margins of professions or maybe are blending or straddling professions who are wanting some anchoring and some um, scaffolding to kind of support themselves to work in those sort of liminal spaces between professions or on the edges of professions and so it's really for them and and if along the way you know the players in the coaching space can pick up some of this um, and begin to think about what it might mean for them great but I don't think we have time to wait for the professions to catch up um, and they serve a valuable purpose for what they do now. My disargument in the paper is that um, the way that we assess and develop coaches, um, not so much for individual coaches, because many of us are industrious and we go out and get what we need, but just as a whole, I still see a lot of coaches who are trapped in old ways of thinking about coaching. Um, and so I wrote the paper just to begin to lay out some landscape around how we might think of this differently. And then um, because I've got some potential projects for next year that are building on this idea of how does one actually create a masterful coach? And, um, and particularly in an industry which doesn't always honor mastery, it honors visibility, success, um, uh, and, and things. And so even for in our own programs, you know, in terms of how do we keep um, enhancing our programs to really understand how to more deeply meet our students 
as who they are when they show up and sort of shape their journey through our programs in a way that gets them at least to a vista where they can see mastery. If, and then we're building some new things next year to actually more overtly support that mastery process. And so I was just in this question, well, how does one actually do that? And so I've been using some of my time this year to study that, and that's from whence the paper came. Yeah, yeah beautiful. There's uh, a lot we could talk about regarding mastery and deliberate practice. Yeah. That is a that is a part of the paper, so I want to come to that. But there's three things you said there that I think I want to just come back to. Mm. Uh, you talked about you know speaking to people on the edges on the in the liminal spaces. Mm. Uh, you talked about coaches being trapped in old ways of thinking. And how does one create a masterful coach? So, yeah. But like, so if I just take those in order, yeah. what is it about uh, people on the edges in these liminal spaces that you think is important in these times? I know me and we both talked about this idea of like the coach being too small a word or, mm-hmm. you know, like, is it, is coach really a part of what another, you know, it becomes part of what someone might do rather than the whole of their identity? Anyway, so what what is it? Why do you speak to these people on the edges? What's important about those as opposed to the people in the center? For someone to become a competent and successful coach is a good thing for them and for the world. So we need all the good coaches that we can find. So I'm not trying to say that um, there's anything uh, deficient about that. It's for me, I think about my own career and um, part of where I um, developed integrative development, which played a lot of role in this paper, came from a, a series of clients I had over a number of years that I worked with for one, two, or three years. Um, and they, the thing that they all had in common was, even though I was brought in for a particular purpose, they were they said, we just want to work with you. Just come be David. And so uh, over time, I came to sort of understand and help them articulate what that meant to them. But what it meant for me was I didn't have to bundle up what I was doing in some artificial construct like a workshop or I'm now going to do coaching or I'm now going to be your OD consultant. Or I could move you know, like water through the system, whether it was a team or um, uh, you know, executives at the top of state governments. Um, you know, global, a couple of global CIO type characters who had major problems that they couldn't figure out how to solve. And I found that when I freed myself from a singular silo or category, I was much more successful and much more able to use all of my skills and without having to label them or put them in a box. And if there was a need for a construct in a moment in time, like, so we might be in the middle of a, a tense team session trying to work on this major project and there's somebody who's really struggling to keep up or is, keeps, keeps kind of misbehaving, if you will. So I might make an agreement with them. Uh, let's take some time after this session to have a one-on-one. I'd like to hear more about what's happening for you and how I can support you in this process. And so we will enter into a construct called coaching because that's what they recognize. But even in that, I might be a grief counselor for a bit. I might, there's a number of different roles I can play, but at least it's in a frame that they understand called coaching. So for me, the biggest thing I, th- I think for me in a lot of this is the invitation, and I've said this many times over the years, 
to think in terms of verbs, not nouns. So I don't think of myself, I've never thought of myself as a coach, ever, even though I've been in this space for 25 years, because it's a box. And if you, and it, it, you, it's easier to sell boxes because people recognize how to buy boxes. But I said, I, I'm interested in coaching as a methodology, as a way of being that can be useful in a variety of contexts, sometimes called coaching uh, sessions. Um, but just that fluidity to think in terms of verbs has allowed me to, over the years, to integrate my own portfolio of gifts and talents and knowledges into what I think of as distinctive offers uh, for people. And so that's kind of where a lot of this um, came from. Because, I, I, yeah, I, I hear in that there's a kind of cross-paradigmatic, mm -hmm. uh, like, development that's taking place within the coach that, you know, one could be a coach, you know, uh, yeah. and then that's the whole of who they are. They're identified with it. And that, that could be actually like, a, you know, a coach as a system. Yeah. But then that's the only thing that they're seeing through it. They're so identified with it. They're seeing through that. Whereas what I'm hearing from you is like, no, who's the, who is the bigger self that mm -hmm. can pick up coaching when needed, can pick up being a grief counselor, can pick up being a strategist, mm -hmm. whatever is needed. And, and I'm just curious for you, like what kind of development do you think, or what's needed to invite coaches into that kind of development? And, and what kind of development is that? You know, what, what's that path yeah. like? Well, for me, I mean, it's part of where uh, the, some of the models I put in the paper we can talk about later, but we don't we don't look for that in the way we assess coaches. We And so what, what I observe in like the better coaches that I know personally, um, you know, a lot of us have um, gone out on our own to, and which many coaches have done to be, you know, developed in mindfulness or movement or um, various different ways of maturing it ourself, um, as well as different methodologies of coaching. But often, I often end up feeling like a, 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 um, 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 a box of blocks of all these different colors and shapes and sizes. Um, and so what I'm, and we, we try to use different techniques or different tools we pick up. Uh, but I find that like in any craft or sport or, or there's chess or ballet or whatever, there's this integration that comes when somebody moves from being an intermediate practitioner who knows all the basic competencies, has done enough development to kind of be pretty good at what they do. But a lot of what I was addressing in the paper is there's a long plateau from there for sometimes quite a while um, to, to reach this place of mastery, which is this integration. So um, you become this uh skill that you're learning you're no longer i'm now doing this you're just i am this and i can be these more the more things i can be the wider the repertoire i can bring to a client the wider the range of situations that i can be in and so i find that one of the big changes i'm advocating for in the paper is that coaching is a very consumptive activity like coaches consume for me more professional development than any other profession i know on the planet but you know it would be like if you were a human and all you did was eight that's not a very effective strategy past about the first or second day you've got to like you've got to you've got to digest it you've got to you know pull out the nutrients you've got to get rid of the waste you've 
you know, you've got to be aware of your senses. You've got to look at your own um, health and diet. And, um, and so for me, a lot of this is an invitation. And how do we, how we get there is really to help us um, just like uh, stop consuming for a while, just like settle, like what is really true for you? What's really actually important to you? What, if you let go of all the buzzwords and all the fancy words you learned and through all these programs, and how can you metabolize that and internalize that to make it such that it's transforming how you are with your clients? And so often in, when I used to do more live programs and when I could travel more, um, the most common feedback I would give people in the workshops is, please stop coaching. Just be quiet and pay attention. What's happening to the human being in front of you? What are they trying to tell you? What are they trying to tell themselves? What do they really need from you? It's not coaching. <laughs> and, and so I think it's that integration where um, you feel at peace and confident in yourself, knowing that whatever comes next, I'll be ready for it. Because I'm not poised with my question or I'm not poised with my, I'm just, my. I'm quiet in my seat. I can receive and get a fuller sense of what's going on and what I might offer this person right now. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Um, I think we're already talking now about, yeah, this road to mastery and um, sort of the freedom I sense from um, a coach being able to recognize the, 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 the frameworks that, that have a hold on them, you know, like I'm a coach and I need to ask a question or be a certain way and then being able to put those down, you know, and the, yeah. and the spaciousness that opens up the attunement that can open mm -hmm. up uh, to see this real human being in uh, from doing mm -hmm. so. And um, I'm just actually wanting to pick up this thing you said about outdated ways that, uh, you know, people, coaches trapped in old ways of thinking. Yeah. Do you think we've been speaking into that already, you know, in the, some of the things you've been saying? What are some of the other ways, perhaps, that coaches get trapped in ways of old ways of thinking? So I think one of the gifts of the pandemic and the other sort of unrests in the world is it sort of laid bare some of our assumptions about how we thought life was supposed to be. And, um, you know, and I've, you know, had a very sort of unique view on like goal setting since day one for 25 years. I've never subscribed to the standard view of coaching that way. I think it's even more true, like the absurdity to me of setting a goal in this current environment is just um, significant. And so one of it is just recognizing that so much of our growth involves suffering, loss, change epiphanies, you know, surprises, mysteries. Um, and we, I think we end up talking about a lot of these things, but, you know, you know, you've had a big change in your life and your business in the last 12 months, you know, and uh, some of that you can make sense of, some you could probably cannot, and it's true for all of us that way. Um, and so I think for me, one of the big things that I'm looking at is the role of mystery. And, and just how profound that is. And, and one of the, I think, mistakes we make in coaching is believing that we can codify change, that we can, if I just learn enough neuroscientific words that I'll understand how the brain works. We, we, don't, we know nothing about the brain, really. I mean, even after all this time, 
and um, which is fine. Um, but it's being willing to be present in the mystery as opposed to I've got to have a plan and I've got to have enough powerful questions and I've got to have a way to set goals and I've got to have all these things which may or may not be useful but really are not at the, for me at the heart of how change actually happens and then I think another big thing for me comes out of my early research to bring attachment theory into coaching and this idea of moments of meeting uh, Daniel Stern and his group there um, have done some brilliant work in this space, but the upshot of it for me in terms of what we teach is around how willing are you as a human to show up to your client and, and have these moments of meeting where you both recognize the relationship and the plane we were operating on before is no longer adequate for what the client's bringing up now, that both of us are going to have to level up. Not we, we could just sit, sit up here in our throne as the coach and they do all the changing down here. Like we better rise to meet them, you know, and and this came out of a session years and years ago when I was doing a workshop and um, a woman volunteered to come up and do a demonstration. And uh, she's not somebody I would have picked as somebody likely to volunteer, but she did. And she had never done that before, she said, but. And we, in this like 10 minute de demo, about halfway through, she started crying. And it, and it was a beautiful moment for her. And it was a surprising moment for her. And I did a lot of things to kind of help create space around that and safety for her. Well, at the end of that, the, the class and even the professor of was there were an uproar. How could you? And oh my God, how, how embarrassing. And all these projections, all these things about this. And I, I said, I can't, I'll, I can't speak for this. Um, I turned to her and said, did you feel safe? Totally safe. Were you expecting that? Not at all. Uh, how do you feel about it right now? Uh, relieved. I didn't realize I had that much sadness in me. And so, and so she was fine. The class was upset because somehow this wasn't supposed to happen in coaching. And even it was even a point that make this even harder for the class where I shed a few tears myself. I was very moved by her story. I, all the attention was on her. All the space was her. So there was nothing. But I needed to meet her at this place because I could see what was coming. I could see that this would be a new experience for her. So I had to sort of shift myself to be at a place where she, to mirror her and help her see her see herself. And in that, she was able to access and allow some tears to come, which I found very moving because I think it was probably the, she reported later, the first time she'd ever cried in public. There's so much in what you're sharing. Um, I wonder, this might come, come tap back into the, the, the conclusion I read out. Yeah at the start which is you know the the worldview that we're moving out of like a modernist worldview with yeah. a certain kind of notion of what the self is and uh you know a certain kind of deeply ingrained belief structures which are collective you know about mm -hmm. uh being successful and being productive and um in, in you know like what what comes out of that like goal setting goals and achieving goals and um, and then maybe even like a kind of more structurally oriented approach to coaching, like the coach mm -hmm. is someone who helps plot this point from point A to point B. And then, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to get there. And 
uh, of course people come into coaching because they want something but it's it seems to me that 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 is an overly simplistic often overly mental approach yeah. to this mystery that the human being is you know yeah. and that there's a way we can be with a person mm. that can allow that mystery to begin to to reveal itself mm. so I, I wonder yeah if that resonates with you around like what are some of these deep beliefs we're holding around yeah what but, yeah what's coming up for me is an analogy that i came up with and uh, i've started a small men's group of mostly creative professionals uh but men who are uh we've all now crossed into our 60s and kind of just asking those kind of questions that one does at this age um particularly for men i think um and they were trying to think, oh, how do we, you know one of them's got a couple of you know young people in his life that are in in high need at the moment he's trying to figure out how to be a dad and all these things and um and you know, how do i build a bridge to a future that's going to be better for them because we're kind of mucking a lot of this up and i started to think about if you've ever been to san francisco or seen pictures of that you know like the really famous golden gate bridge which particularly ironically in the summer is often enshrouded in fog to the point where it's not that far across the bridge but you can't see to the other end uh, often and certain times of the year and day. And I, I said, it's kind of like that. I said, the fantasy we have in coaching is that A, the person knows where they're starting, B, they know where they really want to go, C, that we can figure out how they're going to get there from this point. And what I tell my students is that the person that you're coaching, the person that's going to be able to successfully complete what they're going to uh, pursue is not the person that's naming the pursuit they're describing their objective their all of this from where they stand now if they could succeed at the objective they already would have done that they're going to have to change themselves in some fashion activate a new part of themselves learn a new skill get a more a bit more courage whatever and i want to know the person that's in motion because they're the ones who are actually going to see what they really want and how they're really going to get the word not the person standing back on the bank right and I said, so we, so what's the point of putting all this energy into building this massive bridge if you can't even see the other side of the of the mouth of the bay, right? You're guessing. Is it a half mile bridge? Is it a five mile bridge? Is it going over here? Is it better to land over there? And so the analogy I gave these guys in the group, I said, really, maybe all we're supposed to do, particularly since we're really curious about growing leaders for for the next generations, is maybe we just build the first pylon that we, and where we can still see it's, it's over there that seemed like a good a good direction I think we're going this basic way build our first pylon out of rising up out of the water and let's build a really comfortable platform there and let's gather some people that want to meet and let's talk a bit about what we're noticing and look back and see where we left see what hints we might get about where we're going and I feel like for and so it's been a very instrumental anchor for us to kind of reframe our ambition about how to spend this decade of our life. And I think it's a great analogy for coaching that, like, I don't spend any time in the beginning asking my clients really much why you're here, because they don't know, really. They think they know, but they don't usually, because it's all, there's this trapped in a mystery. And so I do ask them, why do you think you're here and what feels important to you? Or more importantly, where would you like to begin? and then build the trust that we will discover as we start to, as you tell me more of your stories 
you'll discover why you're here, but and then we'll start to get a sense of where we're going. But let's just build that first pylon, like right offshore. And then and that's you've left the shore. So that's the beginning of a journey. You've gone as far out into the water as you can go now with what you know, and you can't know anymore. So let's not pretend. And let's just go sit on that uh, platform and just breathe and notice like, okay, so what's it like to have left the shore? Oh crap, that's, wow, that's bigger than I thought. So there might be grief, there might be relief, there might be a whole range of human emotions. Well, what are you noticing right now? Oh, I can see things I couldn't see from the shore. Really, like what? And so you start exploring, like there's some interesting birds over there, or there, you know, or the water seems to have changed colors. So really, what do you think that's about? Oh, it's and so then they start picking up clues from what they're sensing about their space at that point, what in about what they're actually searching for. Let's go build another pollen over there. Take a dive. What, what is that? Let's, let's go explore underwater, maybe, or let's go do get in a kayak and we'll circle that second platform. What are we noticing here? Oh, the current seems to be wanting to go over there. I was going to build a bridge over here, but the water's all going over there. Great. Let's build our next pylon over there and see what we're going to discover. And so it's a, it's a series of unfoldings. Um, and then at some point, you go, there's land. But it's not the land they would have often ever guessed from when they started on shore, because all they could see was what they could see from on shore. Um, and so for me, it's like um, it takes a lot of self-discipline in a way, a lot of presence and mindfulness for the coach to just uh, surrender any illusion of control over the conversation. That my only job is to be a steward for the safety of, and generativity of this space to help the client hold the mirror up as close as they can so they can see themselves and what's happening and to do what's emerging next. Yeah, I, th that seems to me to be a way of coaching that, that honors the complexity of uh, this, this being sat across from you and the, yeah. and the relationship that you're in um, more so than, you know, maybe a, uh, a very complicated theory of human change, a map that, that you can use to assess somebody and then chart a path towards this, yeah. this new place. So um, I think, and I do think there is like kind of approaches to coaching emerging around mm -hmm. the world that are, that are like tuning into that. that, mm -hmm. that yeah. There's a, there's an organic unfolding that word you use, which is mm -hmm. actually much more aligned with how transformation actually happens. Mm -hmm. And so um, I want to make sure I, I ask you about the the you know we we you titled this paper the five maturities. Yeah. So actually, I think we have to explore what they are. Yeah. Um, but there, I just remember there's something that uh, you were, I underlined here, and I just wonder if we could touch into it briefly, which is like it's cool. I, I don't normally do this in the podcast, so. Um, <laughs> but you said that. Um, Buyers tend to spend the most money on, on the coaching oh. itself, um, yet both the research and experience consistently show that what delivers the most value by far is what is done to leverage coaching and that there is little correlation between what is identified, often with great effort, to inform the coaching and what is most significant in sessions as they unfold um, or, uh, and are uh, impactful as a result. Um, yeah. I think, like, actually what we're just talking about speaks into some of that. Yeah. 
but I'm just wondering, um, uh, what do you mean by um, this phrase here? Like, yeah, research and experience show that what delivers the most is what is done to leverage coaching. Yeah. What does that? What does that mean? Yeah. Well, let me just start with uh, maybe something closer to home, and then uh, as an example, then I can ex uh, explain what I meant. So you know. I know you enough, Joel, to, you know, like me, you've invested a lot in your own growth and, you know, and, um, you know, and if you stop at any point in time and you become aware of, I, I, I'm, I'm different now than I was a year ago or five years ago or whatever it was. And if I were to ask you to name, uh, I'm not going to, but if I were to ask you, if you're my client and how, how, how are you different now? And you say, I, this, I noticed this about myself and I would ask you, how did that happen? You would have no idea. You could like you could reconstruct. Oh, I read this book and I went to this thing and then I broke my arm. And but so much of the gestalt of what actually created that transformation is this amalgamation of intentional and unintentional ac actions. Um, some planned, some random, some whatever. And so the idea that we can then plan that forward is it just seems absurd to me. Like. You know, like the, probably the biggest, uh, most transformative period of my life was also the worst period of my life. I wouldn't have said, like, if, I, if you rewound the movie like two years before that. So, David, what's going to serve you best is to have your entire life blown up into a thousand pieces. You ready? <laughs> I'm like, no, no, I don't want that. So, so part of it is just, again, the illusion of being able to plan forward that way with uh, any certainty. And so but what I was getting at specifically with that is that, um, you know, coaches get really um, attached to the, the perceived value or weight of the session itself, as they should. We should be proud when we have a good session with the client where we feel we've done really well. We've made the most of the period of time. The client seems to have gotten a lot of value. Um, and... Uh, if you look at most of the research, there's an inverse relationship between where we spend our energy and money and time and what actually makes the most difference on, uh, on, um, for clients. And so in the paper, I talk a lot about, you know, coaching tends to focus first on method and then on the coach and then on the coaching relationship. And, um, and then at the very bottom is the client. We don't spend any time talking about clients. We talk about how our methodologies and, and developing ourselves, and but that, well, that's an inverse relationship to what actually the client is by far the greatest variable in outcomes by far, and so like for me the only variable I really track much anymore is readiness. What is this client ready for right now? Everything else is moot to me, because it doesn't matter how brilliant the, the epiphany is in that moment or the aha is or the work I'm doing. And you can have, you can do the best hour of coaching in your life and have the client do absolutely nothing, right? Then what was the value of the hour that was so brilliant? Not very much. And so one of the things that coaching itself, the experience of coaching has both um, primary and secondary effects, which I don't want to under, I don't want to undervalue the importance of a session and the quality of a session, I'm just saying that the research in my own experience suggests the thing I'm now more interested in is readiness to be in the session and readiness to do something after the session. And the um, um, and the same is true with training. I don't, 
I, I want to, and this is where I think there's a frontier to explore reimagining coaching as a construct, and this is where technologies may come to be helpful to us. That if in order for us to change, um, we need these sort of like literally these place, these resting points called coaching sessions, where it kind of propels us forward or gives us some new insights or invites us to reflect or practice. But really, the variable is, is the client willing to stick to that and do all the work between sessions that they're actually going to need to do if they have any hope of sustaining the change? And then on top of that, we think about clients go back into homes or communities or organizations where it's working against them and often in terms of what they're trying to accomplish. And I was sharing that with our group this morning um, about how there was another post again about uh, all these strategies about resilience. And I think it's great. I said, but most of us are pretty burnt out after this last few years and we don't need more trainings or things on resilience, although those are all lovely. We need to stop. We need to look at what are the conditions we've created as a species which makes resilience so much in demand. And it's not that we're not resilient enough. We're plenty resilient, even after the pandemic. It's just the situations we've created for ourselves have overtaxed our ability to be resilient. And we'd be better off spending, how do we create a different way of living and being together that wouldn't, um, I mean, to be resilient now is almost a 24-7 job. It's almost a full-time job for most of us. Even people like you and I that are probably better equipped than many of, of our fellow citizens. And so I thought we can't, we can't learn fast enough. We can't develop ourselves fast enough if we're still in conditions that keep um, uh, challenging us to have to rise up and be resilient again. And so that's and that's why again I think for me I don't have any magical answers to that. We we were addressing that in our programs and in my business, but it's more again a frontier of imagination for coaching. So what would coaching become if it met, actually moved upstream and looked at all the floods that are coming down as opposed to trying to dry off the clients when they come by us? And what if we look downstream and like, where are we sending our clients to? And oh, that's not gonna be very conducive to the changes they started making in the session. Um, and, and so again, it's uh, I, I think well, my invitation always has been the coaching can't be a noun, it can't be one thing. Um, it's got to, for me to be effective now, it's got to be able to be with our clients in a variety of different ways than it ever has been before. And that might mean developing new words, new professions, new identities. I don't know. Uh, but I feel like there's a lot of amazing people in the coaching space. And it's almost like we need to free ourselves to imagine other ways of being deployed. Yeah, that's a conversation I'm interested in having more on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about, you know, the role of, for example, something like AI in that in that yeah. process. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, because I think that there's so many and there's so much in what you just shared, you know, like, but one thing is like, yeah, we see a client once every two weeks maybe once a week, I don't know, but what's happening in between time, what kind of ecosystem is in place to support that 
client in staying with the the, the, mm-hmm. the kind of project and mm-hmm. um yeah and and then so i don't know let me let me fire that at you first like yeah well i mean i have one of my clients at the moment and i'm doing a lot of work with as an ai based coaching platform thing and I, I find it really fascinating and i've done some talks for gsac and as part of an icf research committee on ai and coaching and about the um, ethical and conscious use of technology. So what I don't want to do is diminish human capacities and try to replace it with technologies. Like I got rid of my smartwatch. I just got tired. I don't need this. I, I went back to a nice uh, analog watch and I'm enjoying that peace and quiet. And um, so I think part of it is, you know, a responsible use of technology to augment uh, or to offload some of the things that just take too much time that we could save time on. But there's also then um, a refinement of our ability to develop ourselves uh, in in new ways. And, um, you know, again, I think about, I mean, it's one of the sort of unspoken uh, realities of the economics of the technology industry is that um, there's inevitable um, intended or unintended consequences of every technology. Some are some we deem positive, some not so much. And the, the next generation of technologies is often built around solving the problems the first generation created. <laughs> and and so it's this and and so for me, I think it's there is a lot of consciousness that needs to come into our our uh, decision making. But it's things like for me, in terms of practically what we can do as coaches, aside from dealing with technologies well, because there's a lot of Value so the, the platform that I'm helping them build is um, will save enormous amounts of time in terms of doing supervision, um, and so I'm using this I think as an asset for coach development, and at the same time one of the more simpler things that I'm also doing in my practice is I'm recognizing that I'm with my clients focusing on far far fewer things and going much deeper. So we might spend three sessions on one thing. Like maybe it's literally for one client, it was eating dinner with mindfulness as opposed to just gobble it down to get to the next thing. And that, and so what we're doing is um, that there's patterns in our client's life. The eating dinner is just a symptom of a larger pattern. So in the past, I think like many coaches, I would have tried to tackle the pattern. But no one has the bandwidth for patterns right now. It's we're all just like, and so, and I also realize it's not a very effective change strategy because then the clients get overwhelmed. They don't have support of support, and so it collapses. Or they claim a transformative session, but they carry on their life largely as they did before. Not always, but enough. So we we in a, to a narrative fashion are just like dropping into a story about that reveals the pattern. What's a place where that story shows up often in your life? And how can you create an ecosystem around yourself to just change that one thing? And that's it. And it has to be, um, uh, I can't remember his name now, but there was a guy that uh, said this better than I, and more famously than I, but he um, he said, pick, pick something that's uh, sm- small enough to get done and big enough to matter. Somewhere in that sweet spot. And so for this one client, it was literally eating dinner with more awareness and more presence to his family. And so in doing that, he built up a sense of agency, a sense of accountability, a sense of awareness in himself. 
and made his family happier. And so he had more motivation. I said, I want, what, what can I do next? But, and said, so what did that reveal about your pattern? Like, what was the story you're telling yourself at dinner those first few nights when like, oh, I need to be in my office, you know, I need to be whatever. And he's like, okay. And so he starts un unpacking that story and the agitation, the anxiety, the fear, the drive, uh, all that. And I said, well, where, where else does that show up in your life? And so we started kind of going up this sort of ramp of complexity and scale of problems, but, or issues in it for, for him, but he's scaffolding himself because every small experiment gives him skills to do the next one. And so what I'm finding is that um, by making the focus much smaller, often humorously sm smaller, um, it gives them enough confidence that they actually can do something. And then enough, it's, but it's going to be meaningful enough to reveal the larger patterns in play that allow them then to create enough scaffolding to support them to do just that. They don't have to even change themselves. There's no intent, there's no intent in any of this for them to change themselves. All they're doing is changing one habit. And then mm -hmm. what are you noticing about yourself? Oh, we had laughter at the dinner table. Because usually they have people who are just like, don't don't bother daddy he's you know he's busy or he's preoccupied or you know and so and and he said oh my kids are laughing again at dinner i miss that great so why do you think they're laughing oh because i'm more fun to be around and i'm not so preoccupied and great so how does that feel for you and so you're just like building these like little i don't know if you had this you know, we're in in the netherlands but you make these little dioramas when you're a kid in school out of shoeboxes and you put little things inside and you create these little scenes. You're just creating little dioramas for them, little scenes where they can see themselves as they are right now, do, do the work that needs to be done on that, in the session, but they can take their shoebox with them. It's portable. Take it home. Okay, go great. So what do you need around you to make dinner time better? It's all, it's all I'm asking you to do. And I'm not asking you to analyze yourself, fix yourself, change yourself, just do dinner differently. And then this part of you, oh, I actually cracked a joke last night. Mm. Great. How was that? That was great. I used to be known as the funny guy. Like, what happened to me? Uh, and great. So what would this guy need to show up more often? Um, okay. And then you, you see them start to do their own inner uh, work on themselves, like, what am I doing? Why is it I'm so driven right now? And what is that about? And then they start asking themselves questions. And then they start coming back and volunteering for bigger projects. Um, and then uh, along the way, at the end of, say, every six, six or eight or sessions or whatever, they look back and they think, how did I get over here? Like, how mm. did I become this person? And um, because in their mind, at one level, we never really... Uh, went right at that. We didn't try to change them. We just said, we're going to go through a series of elevating experiences. And along the way, you're going to discover yourself. Yeah, that's a really exquisite kind of uh, sort of unpacking of uh, an yeah. approach there, you know. That, yeah, yeah you, there's no change agenda, uh, you know, that can create tension, you know. Okay, there's a problem. I need, I'm not showing up at dinner in the right way. Now I need to be a different person. Yeah. Suddenly you've amped up the pressure there on yourself, but now you're you're actually playing with like what conditions would yeah. would invite. I, I think that's really beautiful, and 
um, playful and experimental yeah. and, and invites that kind of unfolding mm. uh, in, in a way that you're, you're kind of, yeah, and it's just obviously systemic kind of mm-hmm. piece to it that's uh, really, really exquisite. I, I, want, I want to ask you now because I've got to, I'm like, okay, I've got to ask you about the, <laughs> this is what we do. My, so, um, yeah, what? Tell me about the 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 five maturities. This this yeah. question. So there's three things I've got underlined that I want to explore. The five maturities. Yeah. And then this notion of like, what would it look like if we um, developed a more evolved development coach development process, mm. and 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 the role of deliberate practice inside of that. Yeah. So yeah, maybe we start off with like, what what are these maturities? Why did you name them? What's important about them? Well, it began um, when I was um, teaching internal coaching skills to managers and leaders for a lot of my clients. And of course, they're very interested in performance and how do we use coaching to support our uh, our employees and our emerging leaders to get better and do better jobs. And, and so I started doing some research on what do we know about the variables that actually have the most impact on improving performance. So I, I just read a ton of papers and books and things and kind of tried to, as we do, try to synthesize that down into an acronym. And um, so I called it IBEAM. So the five variables were um, identity, behavior, environment, aspiration or motivation, and mindset. And I started to realize that... Um, when you're looking at why somebody's not doing their job as well as they or you would like, um, normally we try to identify the deficit or the skill gap or whatever and send them to a training. But we don't know like which of those five are they actually strong at and which are they, which, what is weak for them? Like maybe the environment's like totally contrary to what they're being asked to do. Like they, you've given them the wrong team, right? Or they're in the wrong department or they've got, you know, and so, you know, you give them a different boss and while all their performance get better, they, they didn't improve. They now have an environment that supports their success. So I used IBM a lot to sort of um, support a lot of these organizational change projects around coaching to do project and program design and to kind of work with my clients. Where are they strong and where do they might need some more attention? And then I started thinking about if we, that there's so much effort in, in development and in performance around mastery. How do we get better, 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 better? But I thought about, but yeah, but that's where like the critique in the paper about confidence models. It's like, it's such a shallow, simplistic way of thinking about this. And I said, what's what you find in better leaders, better managers, better coaches? Yeah, there's more competency, but it's more their maturity to be able to use those at, um, and um, it's the capacity that they have so that those competencies be- can become capabilities that are used well and appropriately, but they have the, the emotional resources the, uh, and intelligence. They have the, um, the sort of self-confidence, ability to self-regulate. And so I started to realize that there were like, um, I needed, I wanted more emphasis on maturity. And so then I realized that each of these um five I-beam elements sort of spoke to or was informed by a different um, level of maturity. And so I think about um, if I just kind of go around, I've got, uh, we've, so I'm creating this really cool little 
assessment tool based on these. Um, but so if you think about like personal maturity, which um, says a lot about your capacity, your just basic fundamental capacity and your mindset about how you actually show up with the clients. You look at what I think of as um, a, a spiritual maturity. I mean, there's nothing religious about that necessarily, but um, so spiritual in the fullest sense of that word. But it's it's I think of it as relating to your aspiration, like what are your values, what are your ethics, what do you what's orienting you, how do you build relationships and connect to other people, how do you see the coaching engagement in the larger kind of uh, ecosystem because you can see all the different connections. This has a lot to do with the relationships that you form with your clients, which is the you know the second most important thing. The first most important thing is increasing the capacity of the client. The second most important thing is increasing the connectivity between the two of you in the coaching relationships. That's the bulk of coaching in a way, but it's the, the things we often focus the least on. Um, and then you look at the actual professional maturity, which is around behaviors which is where most competency models tend to focus. So yes, I want a professionally competent doctor if I'm going to have my uh, health checked or uh, an operator. I had two little surgeries on my hands last week. Um, I wanted somebody that knew what they were doing. So those competencies are really important. They don't know what they're doing. My, my, my life's at risk. But it's really, but I also, I, I chose the one I did because he had a nice way of relating to me. And he seemed like he was humble enough to meet me as opposed to being arrogant, which surgeons can be sometimes. Um, and then I think about like um, the fourth uh, maturity is around a social maturity. And this is one I think we don't talk about in coaching hardly at all. Um, and this has to do with an astuteness about the environment and both the environment that our clients are coming from and the environments they're going back to. Um, and this has a lot of to do with, again, um, the significance for clients when they leave the sessions. Are they prepared? Are they ready for going to do what they've said they're going to do? Is what they're about to go do going to get them closer to their outcomes? Um, because they're now living the safety of the session going out into the wider environment. And then the last one, which is I called circularity, I think of as sort of contextual maturity, which is in some ways the ability to see the big picture of all the rest of them. But specifically around their maturity, it's the dedication to reflect, to, um, to uh, adapt, to come all the way back full circle to yourself. What am I going to do differently next time? Um, how am I going to admit to myself when I haven't done well? And what am I willing to do to change that? This has everything to do with your identity as a coach. If you keep, if you don't have this one, and you only kind of you end at competency, that it's really hard to track what happens as a result of your coaching, which is everything. Uh, we don't get paid for the quality of our sessions. We get paid for the quality of the outcomes that are important to the client. Um, and and if I don't look at myself, and I stay with an I would think an older view of coaching, which is I'm the coach and you're the client. I'm over here, you're over there. I have a job to do and I'm gonna do that job. And a lot of that job's me asking lots of powerful questions. If that's the identity you have for yourself and there's no circularity or no maturity around that context, you never stop to question that assumption. You don't pay attention to what actually happened in the session and recognize, oh, this client isn't responding well. 
And rather than blame the client or blame ourselves, just saying, I wonder if my story or my identity about myself as a coach is not, a, not useful in this context. Um, and, um, and I see this a lot like when I'm coaching uh, women or people um, of different color um, who their experience might be different than mine. So I have to be aware of my own identity. How is that shaping me as a white man? How is that shaping my, how I'm showing up? And, oh, there's some things I might need to adjust to kind of notice that. If I don't come all the way back around, I'm going to show up in the next session as unconscious as I was the one before. Um, and so for me, the framework, so we're going to look at a way to sort of assess ourselves or each other. Where do we stand on these um, these five maturities, where do where what strengths are we bringing? So like we might say, hey, I'm I feel really um, tuned into my spiritual life. I feel really connected. I build great relationships. So you may not need to spend a lot of your development time there, but you might say, you know, I'm I'm not asking myself the harder questions about the environments that I'm in or the environments my clients are in. Um, and I'm realizing I might not be setting them up for enough, enough success. And I'm so into the relationship with them and the connection and the, the juice of that, that I don't really look at how effective are the sessions in terms of helping the client be successful when they go home. And so just a way to, for us to realize there's, there's a set of knowledges that go with each one that's a bit different. Um, and so again, we don't need to overstack ourselves with yet another mindfulness program. If we already feel like we're a nine out of 10 on that space for right now at this stage of our development, we might say, I might want to go hang out with um, um, in programs that make me uncomfortable and talk, you know, in, in the gay and lesbian community or in go hang out with uh, people from different cultures. I said, I need to, I need to, I need to bump into this and kind of really grapple with this in myself so I can be more effective with those, with clients in those spaces. Um, and so it's just a way of thinking about where do I feel? And it's, and it's important to recognize that maturity is not zero to 10 permanently, like 10, there's some up to permanent 10 up here. I, it's a spiral, kind of a, a escalating spiral. So it's a maturity for where you are in this phase of your life. So you might be 30 and at a 10, but at 35, you're now a three. Because now you see a whole much more you could not see before. And the spiral begins again. Um, but for me, it's just a very much more nuanced way of thinking about how do we help develop coaches in areas that would help them mature um, such that um, they would find value in that in terms of their growth as a coach. How um, how would you diagnose someone in these uh, five different areas? Is it is it like self diagnosis? You know, they would like read about it and then kind of think, oh, you know, actually, I'm I'm not strong on that one. You know, would it be interesting to get diagnosed from your clients or from others? Uh, I don't know if that's useful. And I'm just wondering then how you know you're talking about that now, but how would a coach develop in each of these areas? in a way that's kind of in alignment with what we've been talking about in our whole conversation here, you know, so they don't just go consuming yeah. a bunch of stuff again, but yeah. you know, they're actually in, they're actually in a different kind of practice. Maybe this is where we talk about deliberate practice too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're in a different kind of practice, which is bringing out 
because yeah it's not just about consuming more knowledge no, is it no. no it's not about reading books but and that's helpful i mean but um, it's not really that um so uh, you know to answer your first question i don't know uh, i for me it's been anecdotal in the sense i've been doing this informally for some time um part of why i wrote the paper was to sort of in a way force myself to put all this down in one place um and um and so i've got one of my students but things going to work for me at his university to actually build an assessment tool based on this. Um, it, it, I don't see it as a universal tool that it's there. I think there will be latitude in this because people will define some of these terms differently. I'm, I'm, I'll provide some definition, but that's actually one of my tasks that through a couple of projects I've got next year to begin to answer that question. How could we do this in a way that would be inclusive and productive and um all I know is the categories anecdotally have played out well in terms of teaching coaches. Um, and I want to understand more about how we would support that. And part of that is, um, which was the, I just sort of hinted at at the end of the paper was um, if you, and psychotherapists have the same problem. So there's some wonderful books and literature on bringing deliberate practice to psychotherapists and, you know, all the research, which uh, talks a lot about the, why that's so important. And the thing about deliberate practice, it's most often used in things like sports and music, which are more repetitive, more there's, you can really break down skills. It's really obvious if you're good or not good, you know? Um, and there are um, domains that tend to attract people who are committed to practice. Whereas coaches, we don't get that much chance to practice, really. We're either doing it or we're studying it. And if we do like role plays and things, we just do one or two offs and then we get feedback and we move on. Well, you know, a pianist might play scales tens of thousands of times over their careers. We have nothing even remotely close to that in coaching. And, and so for me, and you know, even for myself, I don't do that either. I've just, I've done it through teaching. So I've taught some of this stuff for 20 years. And so I think I'm now actually getting good at it. <laughs> But I'm, I'm thinking that we, one of the things we're working on in our own business next year is creating this, starting this laboratory. And part of the laboratory is using the AI-based platform with some structures around deliberate practice to help people identify what is one or two skills or maturities as a coach that would be really monumental for you right now. And we're gonna, we're gonna craft, this is part of my own learning curve about how do you, architect this. We're going to create some opportunities in that lab for them to engage in deliberate practice around that skill and that skill alone. Um, yeah. I was going to ask, yeah, would you, would you like break it down into, I mean, I'm really interested in this topic too. Yeah. Do you like break it down into specific things like, um, you know, uh, record, I don't know how I could put this, but like, for example, uh, work in the domain of of um of the relationship i'm not sure which one of those maturities that came in actually was that the social or maybe the spiritual spiritual but, one connectivity yeah video. um just so so like just you know bring into focus that domain of relationship and there are certain things you can play with or practice you know like creating connectivity or revealing yeah. oneself i don't i'm not sure could you break it down and then can, sure people, but, so, or could could coaches break it down and then practice that 
uh, specific skill. Yeah, so and this is again where this video based platform on Avida is a really helpful tool because you can record them and watch the video and see what happens. You can pause the video and say, what could you have done differently? So let's just take, take two really concrete skills. So you might have a coach that, you know, is fairly personally mature and fairly spiritually mature. They build good relationships, they build good rapport, but they get so caught up in the people part that they, they lose the thread of what's actually happening in the conversation. And I, and I see this all the time where they're just, um, they're following the bouncing ball. The client says, oh, well, what? and they're just like hopping from one thing to the next. And so we might say, it might identify two very tangible skills. The skill of, of being able to pause before you say anything, um, which is both, uses their innate awareness of themselves to say, but the behavior that goes with that, you need to express that externally to actually pause your voice because otherwise you're professional self just comes crashing in to ask the next question and follow the bouncing ball. So we, you might just get them to do nothing but pause. So you might just like have your partner uh, say something and then, and you time them. I said, I, when you can read, you can pause for 10 seconds, five times in a row, then now we're, at, we're you know, beginning this, you know, um, Anecdotally, I saw this video yesterday of Steph Curry, who's an amazing American basketball player. There's there a video of him five, five times in a row throwing the basketball from one end of the basketball court all the way to the other end of the basketball court, and it swished through the basket five times in a row. Statistically impossible, even for someone as good as he is. But he works out harder than anybody in basketball. He, he understands deliberate practice. So for a coach, it would be, pausing and just and so then when they're doing uh other practices and they and they don't pause you call time out go back and practice pausing again five more times until you build this ingrain this new habit um it, it might be that when a client skips on you're so enamored with the story and the person and their relationship you have no no attention to the other three competencies or the, down the road of what are they going to do with this and how is this going to help them and where are we going with all this and so one of the biggest skills we, uh, we're, we're working on with this feedback system is to stop the client. Okay, you, you've now moved on to, let's go back to where you just were. And let's try that again, or let's look at that again. And again, stopping the bouncing ball. And so most of the clients, it's ironic, they, they, they won't pause themselves. And they won't pause the conversation to say they just keep going and so and they then they they don't want to interrupt i said but is what the client is what the client doing productive for them no so they're not are they able to help themselves not yet <laughs> so your job as a coach is to help them see themselves do you realize that you've avoided every single question i've asked you and just skipped on to the next thing oh i didn't know i was doing that so let's back that up and so is hearing yourself stop the conversation and challenge the relationship, focus much more on um, the, what's happening in the environment, the, the likelihood of them not doing very well with their outcome because they've never addressed the real issue. They've skipped on to the next thing. Um, and hear yourself stop the conversation and say, I'd like to just, if it's all right, back up to what you just said. That feels really important. 
let's look at that again. And so you might get them with, with a willing volunteer, mostly another coach, practice that five or 10 times in a row, just hearing yourself. And you might even get them to use like improv strategies and exaggerate it. Hey, dude, stop that <laughs> or something. Just so they can have some fun and really, oh, right. and try different, like, and find their voice in this and realize they've got a whole range of ways they could do this. And, um, and not just focus on the little behavior or the moment, but really just say, how do I need to grow myself so I can be mature across all of these areas to be more attentive to what's actually happening for the client and what they need most right now? Really, really nice example. What, what would make um, that uh, different from developing competencies? So competencies normally are just an observation. Did they do this or did they not? Um, and so we don't know if that was a fluke and they paused that one time. They might know that they're being observed, so they, they practice doing certain things, but it's not really their habit. So under the pressure of real life and with clients, they don't do that. Um, and it's, you know, you, you need uh, a capacity in yourself to be able to do these competencies well to do them um, wisely and appropriately, which requires attention to something beyond what's happening in that moment in coaching. Um, and so like a, a real common like, mistake that I made too in the beginning of my career was I was naive about some of the environments my clients returned to. And so I'd be so stoked at the end of a session, like, wow, they made huge progress. And they demonstrated for me because we don't because we don't set goals. We do a lot of experiments in the session to go. Oh, they really they they nailed that. I think they've really got this. It's completely oblivious to the fact that yes, in the safety of me as holding this space and coaching them and whatever, of course they could make progress. But they're going back to a team that they've got no support. That's part of their problem, or a boss that's on breathing down their neck all the time. And so a lot of my clients in my early days of coaching would come back demoralized. Well, I tried that thing we talked about and it failed. And then they're let, you know, then they're less confident in themselves and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, if you saw me in this session, you'd say, oh, David's really confident at that, which I was. But that's not enough for the client. The client need an outcome that's only in the moment. The outcome is largely dependent on what happens after the session. And I can be highly competent in the session. And so one of the huge changes for me uh, that I'm proposing in this framework I've created is that the way we assess coaches, um, for me personally, focuses way too much on the coach, which sounds strange. But again, um, we're not being, I, in my, I believe, we're not being paid to be great coaches. We're being paid to create great outcomes with our clients. So, and if clients, if the readiness of the client to be there in the session and to act on what they do in the session is the fundamental variable for outcomes, and outcomes are the real reason we're there, that I've got to include the client in my assessment of a coach. Like, so for example, it's not about just developing your capacity. Are you developing the capacity of the client? That's like going back to the dinner story. I'm building capacity in him to tackle the bigger issues, which are far beyond dinner, but starting in a place he can manage. So I wanna be, if I'm gonna be assessed, I'm not gonna be assessed just on my capacity, but did I help my client get better and more capable of doing things 
without me. Um, yeah. Well, it's funny because I had a recent guest on. I've not put this podcast out, but he was he was talking about how um, the coaching business model is like coach centered. You know? Yes. Totally. It's like it's it's like you know this is the amount I want to make an hour or a, a yeah. you know and. But is that the is that optimum for the client? You know, like um, in terms of like, oh, we get an hour's coaching and it costs this much money because I'm as a coach, I need to make a living. Yeah. But actually, does that whole way of thinking um, put the cent- the client in the center? Um, yes. So it brings me, yeah, to like maybe there will be an evolution in terms of like how coaching is structured and priced and 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 done. And I just wanted to ask you then. So how do you, um, there's two parts to, and I've forgotten the second part. The first part then is like for, in that example you gave of, um, you know, you, you do it, you do a great coaching session, but then they go to their context and it's, it's a more challenging context. So, yeah. you know, they don't, how, how do you account for that? Basically, how do you, how could you then bring it closer that, that so that the practice you do in a coaching session is, is going to stick, you know? when yeah. they, or it's going to be more useful when they go out there and, and then do it in, in the real world. And how does a, how does a client, uh, how does a coach become better at thinking of yeah. the contextual? Yeah. Well, and, and this is where we use the I-beam. So I look at how, how do you see yourself now in your current context, your identity? What, what, how does that, how do you show up out of that identity? What is that environment like for you? What are you, what are you trying to achieve that it's not working for you? Um, how, what story are you telling yourself? And then we're kind of getting a baseline of where they're starting and then looking at what needs to change for you in that. And so then when I'm, we're kind of getting a, a, a felt sense for what this person may most need to have be different about themselves to be more successful or getting closer to their outcome. I'm also, again, using this framework, which I've always worked this way, but now I'm creating a language for how we actually develop coaches this way, I'm, I'm trying to gauge what's their appetite for this? How ready are they for this? And so um, one of the common practices I do in this, if somebody's trying to, say, be more assertive, that's one of their objectives. I'll say, great. So tell me one way in which my coaching is not working for you. Oh, oh, oh. And... And then eventually I'd say, no, I, I, I mean that. And, and I might say, oh, sometimes you're too casual and I want you to be more serious. That would be helpful to me. What, what, how would that be helpful to you? And, and, then, um, and, then I, and then if I think, oh, they're, they're ready for more, I'm going to say, I don't want to be more ca- less casual. And, and, then they're, oh, and then they're having to rise to another level of their own growth. And so I'm trying to use me as a projective device where they can start to practice with someone they trust and know with complete safety and immunity for fumbling or saying the wrong thing. or And so we're using me as a laboratory. And then I also will try to simulate not people, but energies. Like, like maybe they're a really quiet person. They prefer a quieter space. And back when we had offices and stuff, I, they, they just were drowning in an open plan environment. And and it was too noisy for them or whatever. And um, and so I might, and they're trying to learn some new skills, but um, they can do it in the quiet of a coaching session. So I might 
I might turn on my, I might, I might put music on my phone. I might just tap my fingers and just enough to kind of create, simulate a little bit of noise uh, and, and help them learn how to regulate. Okay, here it comes. You know, I can still practice what we've been learning. And so that we're helping them, again, going back to capacity and connectivity building in the client. Can they scaffold themselves to be able to, to enact what we've discovered in, in the session by virtue of what we do in the session? And then what of those anchorings can we take with them back to work? Like um, if they have a difficult team and they're trying to find their way on this new team, is there one of the members of your team that you like better than the others? You know, there's one guy is kind of more like me, and I can see it's some of this is hard for him too. Great, go have a coffee with him. Start with somebody that's feel that you trust enough, that uh, respects you, uh, resonates enough with you, and start there to kind of build an understanding of how to be more successful in this team. Um, and so we're approximating at the level of readiness the conditions the client is trying to move into with a full with a full consciousness of the context to which they're returning in the, in the environment to which they're returning um and so again um you know in in, in a way you know an ideal and i've been really i've been experimenting with this over the years and i still haven't really figured out a perfect solution because clients want traditional things often but I've been toying with this idea that if you had an hour long session, I think it should be 10 minutes of conversation and 50 minutes of practice. Mm. And we do the exact opposite. We have 55 minutes of conversation with five minutes of practice at the end to try to get them out the door and give them a few tips or things to try when they go home. And, um, mm. yeah, it's a, I think there's, there's some, there's some rearranging of the coaching hour, even as a starting point for this. Um, I, I think we overestimate our clients' capacity to act in what they do in coaching. And we mm. underestimate the challenges they face when they try to do that. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I feel it's more respect. And so I'm just really, um, and we don't, there's no, I can't figure out a way to have a program on client development. Like, if you're a client, come to my program. I'll teach you how to be a better client or something. So we've got to think, so we're experimenting in our own programs next year in the narrative coaching in particular about how do we equip our clients more effectively? Yeah. Well, just, the, just that question itself, you know, like <laughs> I just, you mean, maybe it's not the right frame, but how to be a good client. Yeah. Of course that yeah. could all create a problem of like the, right. they're conforming, but of course yeah. the, the, that wouldn't be the, the ethos. Yeah. It wouldn't be the, the idea of it. It would be like, how can you actually, how can you empower the client to, to yeah. succeed in their outcomes? You know, I mean, if you yeah. created some, 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 uh, I don't know, experience around that for them, that they would come into the coaching, yeah. uh, having gone through or they would do in the coaching, you know, I love, I love, I love that. It's a really powerful, it opens up something inside of me immediately. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, when it gets uh, coaches out of themselves, you know, yeah. and out of their own way and out of their own methodologies to just, Pay attention to the human. There's they and their stories are telling you everything you need to know. It's right in front of you. And what do they need next to mature themselves? Um, you know, and they're like there's a, you know, um for, for a lot of men that you know, it's a staggering the percentage of men who have no close friends. 
right? And so one of the, you know, around the spiritual maturity for many men, it might be, go make a friend. That could be the best thing you do for them in your entire coaching engagement, is they made a friend, right? It has a huge, it will have infinitely more impact on their life and well-being and survival, frankly, than any goal you could ever set for them. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um, look, let me just ask one last quick question. So sure. uh, we haven't got long, but what would be the um, impact you would like to have, this paper to have, you know, either on the reader or like, you know, yeah, what, what impact would you like it to have on the industry, on the reader, in the world? Yeah, yeah, I've thought about that. Um, well, in the projects that I, that, um, I may be involved in next year, they're waiting on funding. Um, it part of it will be research on what does actually create mastery in coaching. So I've I've got a colleague who's got a very large coaching graduate community, and many of whom are MCCs in the ICF world. And she said, "But I don't see them still as masterful yet, even after all we've done." So she's going to work with me to uh, invite me to explore with that community of people. Um, what mastery would actually would look like. So that, that part of it is, I think we just need to understand what does it even look like? And then, then beneath that is how would we need to change how we develop coaches as humans um, to be more mature, to be more masterful and to be able to engage with mystery at a higher level. Um, and I think then particularly um, uh, to, if to for coaches to be able to adapt themselves to address issues that their clients are facing more at the nexus of those or you know, the cold face we would say in the state sometimes of those issues as opposed to in the safety of a coaching session, coaches have to change a, a lot about how they see themselves. And I feel like there's huge opportunities. Um, and so for me, I look at the paper really as a catalyst to challenge some of our competency models, to do the harder work of what does mastery in our space actually look like, to I'd like to see less talking heads at conferences and more workshopping with each other, more transparency amongst the schools and the training, you know, about what are we not getting yet? How Why are we still missing this? And um, I feel like there's an enormous opportunity, which we're doing some things about to address on our side to kind of convene some of this, but how, how do we need to d develop coaches differently and how can we help each other? Because different schools have different strengths. We, you know, there's schools that do brilliantly at each one of these things, but none of us do all of them well. And so how could we help each other um, develop a true coach for the 21st century? Uh, and then what would have coaching have to become to allow that to happen? Yeah. Hmm. David, uh, I think this is a beautiful place to bring this to a close. And oh. uh, it's been rich, this conversation. There's a oh. lot packed in. I feel like we could, you know, <laughs> take any number of the topics yeah. and expand on those. And maybe yeah. we will. And I'd certainly be very passionate to continue that conversation, especially yeah. as you're, you're you're learning things about, you know what it what what it takes to be truly masterful yeah. as a coach uh so yeah. so thank you david and no, i want to no. just uh, yeah where can we where can we find out more about what you're up to 
Well, so um, our website's at the momentinstitute.com, and um, I'll, I'm starting my own website in February um, to kind of host more of my research and my, my work in this space, which will then feed back into the Institute, but also be available for other spaces as well. Um, yeah, so you can, yeah, there's a way to get on our mailing list and uh, sort of keep updates with what we're working on in this space. Um, and I feel like we're kind of at a plateau. Or it, it, it's almost like the profession itself needs to be more masterful. So like, I feel like we've hit this plateau and, you know, I've done this, you've done this, where we're, we're putting all these brilliant programs and presentations and informations and, but that's sort of at a, it's an intermediate plateau. You don't, you don't get masterful going to these things. <laughs> you just get to be a better intermediate practitioner more informed, more capable, more connected, but mastery is, I think, a whole different ballgame. It's a guild-like experience that we don't have in coaching. And so I think there's opportunities for more collaboration, more challenging of ourselves to undo things that we've grown attached to, like endless programs, to say programs have a huge role to play from beginner to intermediate. And after that, they have much less of a role to play. Mm. That's the mystery that we don't really understand fully yet, because we're dealing with complex human beings in a complex world. And so it's our willingness to put down some of what we've come to know and love and recognize for the field to evolve, for the profession to evolve, for coaches to evolve, we have to invent new ways of helping them develop. Yeah, hell yes to that. Here we are, we're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com, put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.